Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. It's a beautiful word to be reminded. Still our souls in his presence and, and in that tone as we look to get into his word this morning. I just want to start us with a word of prayer. If you'd bow your heads with me. Father, uh, we know um, as we are all coming in this room from different places and each of us uh, have experienced at times and maybe even this week the storms of life. And Lord, what we just sang is not that there is no storm in the life of your followers, but that you are the God of those storms, that the winds and waves obey your voice. So Father, I pray that as we gather in this place, we would be still and that our souls would know that you are God. And in the midst of the storms, we would find peace, knowing that the one who places us in the storms gives us grace to endure the storms, and that we have a day that we look forward to when all things will be made right. And that hope is found in one place. His name is Jesus. And that hope we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 4 today. My name is Justin, one of the elders uh, here at Peninsula Grace. My privilege and joy to be able to open the word up for us together, look through it. We're going to be talking about discipleship during difficulty. So every Friday morning, um, this reminder goes off on my phone. This reminder app is um, kind of my brain in some ways. The only way that I accomplish many of the things in my life is to be reminded from this blessing from the Lord called the reminder app. Um, so on Friday mornings at 8 a.m., this little thing dings at me on my phone, and it says, weekly goal check-in. So I have goals in my life that I've prayerfully considered before the Lord of what areas of spiritual growth I believe he's calling me into, uh, goals with relationships in my life, physical goals, uh, uh, financial goals, all sorts. And, but the, at the beginning, I have this little Google Doc, and at the beginning of this doc is there's this reminder that I so desperately need. It's a reorganization orienting every week for my soul, and it reminds me who I am, my identity. At the beginning of this, I just put simply, I am, and, and these are the following things that in, in Christ I am. Number one, I am a child of God, I've been adopted by him into his family. I'm a follower of Jesus, a disciple who makes disciple making disciples. I'm a member of Christ's body, a part of his family here on earth. I'm a husband to Jill. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a relative. I'm an elder here at Peninsula Grace, and I am a neighbor. This is who I am by the grace of God in relation to the people around me, to my God and Savior whom I worship and love, and the people around me that I'm called to love and serve. And the mission that I'm on, the, thing that, the things that I'm called to do, is determined, that, that mission is determined by this identity, who I am. Now, the reality is, for those of us in this room who profess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, we are his followers. We are his servants, his children, his disciples. And we let that sink in for a moment. The servant, the follower, does whatever his master says, obeys the voice of the one whom he follows. We said last week, for all of our, our Lord of the Rings nerds out there, that we are on a mission that we are on this mission, and the mission is to be a disciple who makes disciple makers, to go into the world and continue Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost. Now, each of us, we have an identity, and mine is different than yours, right? None of you are a husband to Jill, okay? Just me. Back off. Saw her first. Had a twin. It was kind of confusing. Um, 
wherever you are on your journey, maybe, maybe you are a single mom. Maybe you work on the slope and you're only here half the time. Maybe you're an empty nester that season of life. Maybe you're a missionary. Maybe you're in between things. Maybe you're a college student, a high schooler. Like me, you have your own identity. And wherever you are on your journey, maybe you're a baby Christian who's just getting started. Maybe you are old enough to have been one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, right? Wherever you fall in that spectrum, you have an identity. And listen, you are an important part of God's mission. But sometimes we buy the lie and go, I'm just kind of a side character. I'm just a fan in the stands. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a worship leader, I'm not a missionary. But that's a lie from Satan. That each of us have a mission and we have a unique mission because of the people that God has put us in, put it in our lives. We each have influence. The people that God has put on our path. And we have a responsibility to love the people that God has put on that path. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Today I would invite you to join us. The greatest adventure as his children. Now, the reality is only you have the specific gifts and abilities and spheres of influence influence, uh, that you have. So I can't reach your children the way that you can. I can't reach your coworkers the way that you can, the friends that you have, right? And you have been, you can, and only you, I can't uniquely comfort and emphasize or empathize with those that you can. I have never had a hard-to-reach teenager of my own. And so those who can most empathize with those who have a hard-to-reach teenager are those who have walked a similar road. Your unique mission is determined by your identity. Who God has created you to be and who he's put you in shoulder-rubbing distance with. And here's the reality. As long as we are in this fallen, sinful world, this path of discipleship will be difficult. Jesus told his original disciples, he said this in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise word. You will. You're going you're to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a hard road. And we know that the, the, the discipleship is our duty, and it's not an easy one. Very rarely do our kids just sit there and go, mold me, right? If that's your experience, praise the Lord. And we've all gotten the phone call, or will get the phone call that changes our life. The results come from the hospital. Each of us, we, we've experienced the stubborn employee, the heavy-handed employer, the annoying family member that you don't want to come to Thanksgiving this year. The friend who just doesn't seem to listen. And we've got our own sinful hearts on top of all that. And when it's difficult, how do we persevere? How do we faithfully follow Jesus on this mission that he's called us to? This is what Paul wants to address in this letter with Timothy. And thank the Lord that he does, because there's so much that we have to learn and be encouraged by in this book. Timothy also, like us, had an influence and a responsibility that he was put as a shepherd over this group of brothers and sisters, this family at this church in Ephesus. And what was his specific mission there with them? Paul tells us at the end of chapter 3, he tells him his mission. He says, I hope to come to you, Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, and our favorite word, a buttress of truth. Now, we know his, we see his purpose here is to teach this family of God, how to live on earth as God's renewed people. 
God's renewed people. And what he said in chapters 1 and 2, he said there's going to be, in the church, I'm seeing, Paul saw there were the wrong kind of leaders. Those who were causing disruption and disorder were deceiving people, were leading them off the path of truth. He says you need to rebuke them, and you need to even remove them from the body. But then in chapter 3, he talked about the right kind of leader. The elder and deacon, the offices in the church, and, and that they ought to be the right kind of person, a mature Christ follower who lovingly serves. And then he comes to the end of his, chapter 3 with his purpose statement and saves the most important truth for the dead center of the letter. He says this, great indeed we confess... Chapter 3, verse 16. The mis- great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery, we said, was the secret that has now been revealed to the world. And what is the secret about? Of godliness. How we are made right with God to live right before him, to live with him, to worship him in a way that pleases him. And he says there's only one way. What's the secret that's revealed and how we have this right relationship with God? It's nothing that you and I could do. He tells us the mystery. He says it's he It's Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. He came to earth and dwelt among us and then died on a cross for us. And he was vindicated by the Spirit, raised to new life, conquering sin and death forever. That he was seen by angels, the witnesses, then proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world and then finally taken up in glory. What we see here is it's not us living rightly before God. It's that Jesus lived rightly for us and then died and raised to new life in and through us. It's Jesus coursing through our veins that allows us to live the kind of life that glorifies God. That's the good news that we proclaim to the nations to believe he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Amen? There you go, young and old. And now in chapter 4, Paul is going to describe two kinds of disciples that follow this great Jesus. He says there are those who will desert this Jesus and those who will be devoted to this Jesus. True disciples. This is my favorite chapter in the letters. Paul's going to get very personal with Timothy. It's this look-at-me moment that he has with Timothy. We hear Paul's words as a father to a son. When I hear these loving words, he says, to my true son in the faith. And this is a reminder for each of us today that we're on a mission. And this mission with Jesus, he says, it will be difficult. And we are called to be devoted disciples of Jesus, not those who desert. And so the first one we're going to look at is deserting disciples. Now, uh, someone pointed this out to me in the first service. We got our titles mixed up. So uh, you're going to see an A and B. Cross out A and B if you're following along in your notes. It's, it's, it's from last week's thing left over. So don't, don't freak out. So just cross it out and then put that title in its place. All right, we, we cool? All right. So 1 Timothy 4, we're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, we're going to talk about deserting disciples. Now, that doesn't mean disciples who love desert, although blizzards are a gift from the Lord on high. Can I get a witness from the congregation? Thank you very much. Um, we say, he says in verse 1, uh, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. So he gives this warning. Now, we don't know how Paul heard this, received this from the Spirit. Don't know if he got a notification on his first century phone, like when Governor Dunleavy freaked us all out earlier this year, right, with that no- thing that you know, made all that noise. And we're, what are you trying to say to us? Uh, we, but we know, we do know that this truth, that there are those who will depart from the faith. Man, I see that from cover to cover in our Bibles, right? We see people who walk away. The way is narrow, Jesus said. Few will enter and stay the course. He says two things about a deserting disciple. The first one is that they will depart from the faith. 
They are ones who depart from the faith. This is the Monty Python runaway, runaway moment. Um, that it, the word depart means to desert, to fall away, to become faithless, shun, or, or flee from. These are those who say, Jesus, I'm out. I'm out. Now, now how do these people come to that decision? It's a great question, and that's the next point. Dev- they devote themselves to deception. They devote themselves to deception. Look at what he says. They'll depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed. Now, what we see here is Paul addresses there is a spiritual and a human realm going on here, isn't there? There are some who would smirk and scoff at the idea of demonic activity. In the West, we by and large, no, 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 no. It's just what we can see and touch. He says, no, this doesn't come from humans. He says, this is, these are deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Nor, however, is he saying this is just the guy in the red suit with a pitchfork sitting on our shoulder whispering into our ears. He says, this comes through who? Through liars, through, through those who are not listening to their conscience any longer, through those who are in flesh and blood. Now, we look at this phrase, the teaching of demons. Anybody, would, would anybody here say, yes, I am one who listens to demon teaching? Anybody? That, 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 oh, Blair, thank you for your uh, honesty. We got, we got some counselors set up in the back if you want to know. But we, so we would say, but, but we often think, well, of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow a demon's teaching, right? None of us would intentionally, consciously do that. But Blair's right, we all do. Because he says, what he says here is it's just, they are deceitful spirits. They are spirits who deceive. That none of us just wake up one morning after all these days of faithful following and say, I'm out. I'm taking a hard left turn here, and I'm not following Jesus anymore. Very rarely is that the case. Just like it's very rarely that somebody just wakes up one morning and says, I'm not going to be faithful to my spouse any longer. Or that we wake up one day and say, I'm going to start to be addicted to this thing that I'd never even looked at before. It it almost always starts with a little lie. It won't hurt. It's not that big of a deal. A little resentment. They hurt me. I need this. I deserve this. And we take that lie, we take that little resentment, and we nurse it, and we coddle it, and we raise it into a monster within us that we end up devoting ourselves to. This is what he says. They devote themselves to these lies from these spirits and liars. This word devoting, it means to to give your attention to, actually to give yourself to, to become addicted to. So the question is, what voices am I listening to? Just like when you're driving down the road, if I look off to the side, I'm going to eventually, that steering wheel is going to follow where I'm giving my attention. And in the same way, we see here that I will eventually give myself to, head in the direction of what has my attention. And it almost always starts out seemingly small and innocent. In fact, look at what Paul says this, this false teaching is. He says, this is, what the, this is what these liars teach. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. Now, you might at first say, okay, what exactly, uh, what, would that be so bad? I mean, to say don't get married and don't eat certain foods. I mean, it could be a lot worse. These people could be telling you to go out and murder people. I mean, maybe a little dramatic, Paul. Like, why, why get so worked up? We don't have the time for all the details here, but most likely this is coming from a heresy that was uh, very practiced at the time called asceticism. And this, it was a concept of self-denial of pleasure for spiritual gain. So if I denied certain pleasures in my life, that that would make the God or gods happy with me. 
Now, we know that there is a form of self-denial that can be good. Periods of fasting, giving things up that are very beneficial for the believer. Even with marriage, Paul says that there are those who are devoted to the mission of Jesus, and it can even be an advantage to stay single. He's not saying you have to get married or you have to eat all different kinds of food, but where the heretical part comes in is the teaching that all of those things are off-limits for everyone and that the stuff themselves is evil, that marriage is evil, that these foods are evil. And avoiding the stuff makes us pleasing to God. If I just avoid the alcohol, if I just avoid the pornography, then God will be happy with me. He will accept me. But as Jesus clearly taught, it's not the stuff around me or that goes into me that makes me evil. It's what comes out of my heart that is sinful. And the reason that this teaching is so deadly, you see, these demons were deceitful. These liars knew. You're not going to get anybody to say one day, yep, I'm denying Jesus outright, not the Savior of the world. But if they could get them to shift their attention, if they could just redirect that attention and move it toward this idea that from, from kind of a shift from grace to, to legalism, we could say, that, that, that this demonic teaching was to say that we gauge our right standing with God according to the stuff that we've denied or given up. Instead of seeing that our right standing with God is for what Jesus gave up his own life for us. And that, that the salvation through comes through his life, a new heart that's been given to us. That and, and any other gospel is a false gospel, and that road is paved to hell. It says in verse 3, these foods that they're saying to stay away from, these are foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says, that is, that is a not God's point of view. Let me tell you what God's point of view is on these things. And he uses two things to refute this heresy of asceticism. The first one, in verse 4, he's going to talk about creation. He says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He says, God is good, and therefore the things that he creates, God cannot create evil. And so the things that he's created are good. Now, we've seen sin pervert those things, but God created them, and they are good. There are not little demons hiding in your gluten. Might be reason to avoid it, but it's not to avoid little demons. It can all be received. How? He says, with thanksgiving, because God made it. The second thing he's going to point us to here is the incarnation. The incarnate, carne, meat, carne asada. Mmm, me gusta, mucho, right? So this is the idea of in, in meat, in the flesh. And this is what Jesus did. He came to earth. It says at the end of chapter 3, he was manifested, revealed in the physical flesh and blood of human stuff. The stuff that not only did God create the world, but then he entered into that creation himself and he took on flesh. So the physical can't be all bad, as asceticism teaches, because Jesus himself became a physical being. Then he says, kind of a weird verse, this is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? Uh, to be set apart, right? Set in its proper place. Uh, now, what he's not saying is that we make this kind of this magical prayer that transforms it. Kind of the Tim Hawkins joke, Lord, take this Cheeto, transform it into a carrot stick as it slides down my gullet, right? That's not, that's not what he's talking about here. To receive it with thanksgiving is to see it as a gift from God. And it's to receive it in its proper context. So look at the two conduits. This is the word of God. This is God speaking to us. God informs us. This is good for you if you take it in the context in which I intended it for you. So he says marriage is good, or sex is good in the context of marriage. That, that food is good in the context of moderation, not gluttony. So not only is it receiving it in, in the way he speaks to us, but then prayer back to him. It says, thank you, Father, for this good gift. To you be the glory. You see, 
We receive it. We don't, we don't reject these things as evil, nor do we elevate them above God himself. Say, we, we love the giver and we receive the gifts. This is what Paul is trying to get at here. So we ask ourselves, do we believe, on what basis does God accept me? Does he accept me on the basis of, the, of avoiding the evil that's all around me? Or is it primarily through understanding that there was evil in me and that God performed a heart transplant, cru- crucifying my old self, my old heart with Jesus, and giving me a new one through the risen Savior? So you can see how simply seeing stuff as evil, not as the heart being the problem, can lead to a rejection of the gospel. We need to use caution. We have eyes open and see the truth. So the question is, how do we avoid becoming those who desert Jesus and stay the course, stay on mission with him? And that leads us to our second point. Again, cross it out and rewrite this. The devoted disciples, devoted disciples. In this section, Paul gets deeply personal with Timothy because he knows he's in the thick of it. This is a difficult thing that he's doing at this church. He says, Timothy, look at me, listen to me. And I know there are times, think about this last year, through the pandemic, through all the craziness that we've come through as a country, as a state, as a church. I know there were times where I felt overwhelmed, discouraged, and I needed this look at me moment. And I needed to turn my heart back to Jesus, back to the truth, hear it from the words of a close friend who loved me enough to to speak the truth to me, encourage me. He says in verse 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's our word servant, deacon, from the, from the chapter before. A good servant who serves well if you do these things. Now, he gives seven charges here to Timothy, a devoted disciple in difficult times, that he was trying to nurse this unhealthy, divided church back to a healthy place. And, but these are seven principles that I believe apply to any disciple in any difficult time, which we all find ourselves in. So let's look at these. Uh, the first one is, he says, stay in the word every day. Stay in the word every day. Those in the FBI have learned that the best way to tell counterfeit money is not by studying all the counterfeit, but it's by knowing that true dollar inside and out, backward and forward, every little mark. So the moment that they see a false dollar, they can immediately identify it. I know the true one so well, but I know that ain't it. And in the same way, it says the best way that we can deflect those lies that lead us down the path of destruction from our own hearts, from the teaching of demons, is to stay with our eyes on the truth every single day. Now listen, I am not talking about a legalistic daily devotion to make God happy with us. I got it checked off the list, right? I missed the day, now God's going to be angry with me. I'm talking about his word, his truth, is water to our parched soul. And we need it. We need it constantly. He says, the word here, he says, be a good servant, being trained in the words of the faith and of the doctrine, the good doctrine that's teaching that you have followed. And this word trained, to be trained in these words, to be trained in this truth, the word means to be nourished, to nourish our bodies. We know that just like food nourishes our body, and it depends on what kind of food. I love Sour Patch Kids, but I know they have limited value in my nourishment. And I also know that the amount of food, if I have one meal a week, that's not going to be enough to sustain me for all the rock mountain climbing and crazy things that I like to do throughout the week. You all laugh at that. I don't know. Um, we see here Jesus is the bread of life. We know he is the living water. He is the vine. We are the branches. And the reality is five minutes a week with Jesus in his word is not going to be enough to sustain us through the difficult times. So let me ask you, are you in his word? Is his truth nourishing you, feeding you with the strength that you need are you being taught that humility to learn? Are we feeding on the junk food of the world? 
Now maybe you're like, I, you know what, I don't, I don't, one of my challenges, I don't even know what to read. I just kind of open the Bible and point and, you know, see what, hopefully that verse applies to me. Well, one tool, this is just a tool that we have uh, in the back on, on the way in there at the table. We have a little reading plan that we do as a body. Uh, we're just reading through the passages as we're preaching these uh, on Sunday mornings. We're going through First Timothy together right now and some other passages. If you go under our website, just click on the reading plan link and it'll take you to this page where you can either download a PDF or it'll bring the little links up there. You can just click on it and the verse just magically appears. We make it so easy. And, and this isn't a plug. We're not making any money off of this. This is just a way to say this is an avenue. You say, I don't know what to read in the morning. Let's do this together. Let's talk about this together. Let's be in the word. It's feeding our souls. It's, it's keeping us on the right course. Number two, stay away from brain candy. Stay away from brain candy. I love that term. My friend Jacob had used it once, and it was really helpful to me. Candy, as we know, tastes so good, right? And for those of you who prefer savory instead of sweet, you weirdos, uh, you can have your chips and salsa. That's fine. But we know that these hankerings for the sweetness, they, they, these the sweets have very little nutritional value for us, right? There are, there are many things that we can place our attention onto that, that are fun, that are entertaining, but they have little to no nutritional value for our brains. So when we are absorbed in social media and Netflix and sports. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we don't have any sugar. But what did we say earlier? We have it in moderation, right? Now what he says here in verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. There are stories and arguments we saw from chapter 1 that they were getting so focused on, and it was taking them off the true course of encouraging each other in the word. So some of us would say, well, I'm going to stay away from a movie that has too much cussing or too much violence or, or, or too much uh, promiscuity. But, but we should really be thinking anything, man, anything that does not lead us toward a deeper knowing and loving of Jesus. He says, have nothing to do with what's irreverent, what's common, what's not from God. So we think about our conversations are my conversations uh, centered around uh, pointing people to Jesus or lifting high with other brothers and sisters the beauty and, and truth of who Jesus is in our lives and what he's doing? Is it from God? Is the content that I'm absorbing pointing me and others toward the risen Jesus? Now hear me, I am not saying that Netflix is evil. I watched it last night. I'm not saying that conversations about fishing are bad. But what we allow to take the center stage in our mind, to occupy our minds, will shape us as people. So we think about our week, the conversations we had, the content we've absorbed. How is that shaping us? We're following something. We're being shaped into something. The question is what? Number three, we stay spiritually fit. Stay spiritually fit. Verse seven, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, there are two ways to read this text. The health nuts read this and go, see, the Bible says to work out. And then the couch potatoes go, eh, it said it's some value, right? It's a little bit of value, which is actually what the Greek did mean. It was, you kind of look at it. I, reality, some of us, the couch potato would say, you know what, six packs and punch bowls, you both die and go to Jesus when you die. Hallelujah, right? So it doesn't matter, right? That's, I tried that on Jill. It didn't work. We still, we still eat well and, and exercise. Paul's point, we know what happens when we don't exercise. We know what happens when we eat too many Sour Patch Kids. How much more devastating, he says, when we don't stay spiritually fit, and how much more beneficial when we do. Not just for this life, he says, but also for the life to come. So how do we do this? Well, we know that just watching a workout video is not going to remove our love handles, right? 
just watching it. It's not by as osmosis. Are we, gonna, we actually have to put in the reps like this guy. You got to get after it, right? That bear is going to be, you're going to be fit. So what do we do? We, yes, stay in the word. We read it. We know it. But if it just becomes head knowledge, that's not much use. If we don't put it into practice, the training Putting in the reps of not just understanding what the word says, but then walking in it, loving other people, serving, giving. We've got to put in the training. Do what the word says. Number four, stand firm in their teaching. Devoted disciples stand firm in their teaching. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Now, Timothy had authority in this church. Command and teach, he says back at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant. How are you a good servant? You put these things before them. Now, what, what things is he putting before them? Well, the truths that Paul just talked about, the gospel. Teach the truth and warn about the lies. That's what he's calling him to. Now, in our lives, we need to understand the serenity prayer says, Lord, we need the wisdom to understand the difference between the things we can control and the things we cannot control. The things we can control and the things we cannot control. So we go back to our spheres of influence. We talked about those in our lives who we can influence. We cannot control anybody. But we do have influence. And with that influence comes responsibility. We have responsibility to our children, to, to our spouse, to our family, to our coworkers, to our small group, to our ministry team, to our friends. And, and, and to, a responsibility to do what? To teach the truth. To speak the truth in love to one another. Now, there are different levels of, of authority in our lives and, and what we're called to. But we are called to teach. And he says here in verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. He says, Timothy, read, be in God's truth with the people there. Let's get everybody's eyes on the truth. Exhort each other. That word is to encourage, or to spur on, to teach, instruct, train. We do this through the word of God. So the question is, is, is our default to take people to the word? When we're going through tough things together, do we open the Bible and say, what does God say about this? Do we have conversations with our Bibles open? What we can do, what we can control is proclaiming truth. What we say, and even more important, how we live it. What we cannot control is how people respond to the truth. And that takes us to our, our fifth point. Stand against undue despising. Stand against undue despising. So when somebody corrects you in your life, when someone points out that something is wrong or tries to point out a better way, how do you, what's your default response? Are you like, thank you for pointing out another error. Oh boy, I love repenting, right? Is that your default, like mine? We, we know when, 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 when someone speaks the truth, we, we often don't want to hear it, right? Uh, and, and, and like Timothy, he's in this church, he knows that, that, they, that Timothy's going to be met with resistance. That he's going to pe have people who are going to come right back at him. Go, and who are you? Like, like you're perfect, right? We never want to hear th that we're wrong, right? That's, that's not our flesh's default response, response to be giddy, to be called out. And he says here in verse 12, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. Now, this word youth here, that's a pretty big umbrella. It could be referring to someone as old as like 40 years old. He, he's not, the point isn't just, you know, little toddlers. He's, the, the elders in the church were older. This is a comparison term. And these older, they were looking at him going, who are you, you little pipsqueak? I'm older than you. I'm more experienced than you. I know more than you. Who are you to tell us anything? And what he says, see, the reality is we can't control what people think about us. We can't control what they say about us. Haters, they're going to hate. We can't get our names out their mouth. It's not going to work. But what he says we can do is remove 
reasons for legitimate negativity toward us. Look at what he says. But, don't let them look down on you because they're your youth, but set the believers an example how in speech, what you say, in conduct, how you live, in love, in the way that you live that out, in your faith, what you believe, and in your purity. So what he says we can control is the way we live, and we remove reasons for people to look down on us. See, more than preaching at people, we need to show uh, preaching Jesus at people, we need, to show, we need to show Jesus in us to people. So the question is, what is our example that we're setting for the people that we're influencing? And listen, I'm not saying, Paul's not saying that, that means to be perfect, because we're not. That would be lying. First John, he who claims to be without sin is a liar. And one of the best examples we can set before the people around us is to be quick to confess sin when it comes up inevitably in our lives, to repent of it. To be an example says, I'm wrong too. I need Jesus as much as the next person. And look at what he's doing by his grace in my life as he changes me. We stand against undue despising. And then number six, we stay the course. Stay the course. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There's prophecy, there's laying on of hands. We don't have time to get all into all of that right now. But the point is, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you are in a difficult situation. And look at me. Look at me. Do not forget that moment when God called you into this. Use the gift that he gave you in the situation that he, in his sovereignty, has placed you into. See, brother and sister, maybe you're in a valley right now, or you will be, or you have been. He says, look at me. God has gifted you for such a time as this. This fear of influence, this responsibility, this mission that you've been given with this specific situation, with these specific people. And he tells us in verse 9, this is, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the third time he's used this phrase now. He says, listen, you can trust him. The God who has put you in this difficult situation, you can trust him. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. This is why we toil. This is why we strive. This is why we don't deserve. This is why we don't abandon. This is why we don't bail on him. Because we have our hope set on the living God. Our God is not dead. He is alive, amen? Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's alive. And because he's alive, because our God is still on the throne, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe, we keep going because our God is still alive. And the God that has put us in this situation will never give up on us. The same faithful God who adopted you as his child, Paul promises he who began that good work in you, he's the one that's going to finish it. That the strength that we're given to persevere and stay on that path is not our own strength. It's the strength of the Holy Spirit in us. So we stay the course by his grace, by his strength, for his glory. We use the gift that he's given us in the situation that he's given us. Stay the course. Finally, stay focused. Stay focused. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. He says, live this out. Put it into practice and be immersed. He says, see, following Jesus is not a part-time hobby. You don't squeeze it in with band practice and, and school and work. He says this is a full-time job. That following Jesus is actually the lens that we do everything else in our life. This is the central focus. And why does he say to do this? He says so that all may see your progress. So that the people, people are watching. We have an influence as salt and light in this world. And I love this. This word progress is kind of bittersweet. It's, a, it's, it's encouraging 
because we know that we're all a progress. We're a work in progress, that we haven't arrived, right? We still got a ways to go to become like Jesus, to live like Jesus. But it's also sobering because we're reminded we still got a way to go, that we're not there yet. See, following Jesus doesn't leave space for neutral ground. He says, you're following me or you're following somebody else. You're progressing in your faith or you are regressing in your faith. So therefore, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Pay attention to what you're listening to, what you're believing, how you're living, and how you're teaching. Why? He says there's a twofold effect. Persist in this, for by so doing, here's what will happen, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, this is not a a works salvation. You've got to remember that the context that we're in here is the Spirit is warning about those who will depart from the faith, that will start listening to those lies, that will sear their consciences and be deceived and go off course. And he says, stay focused. It's like a compass. If the compass is off even a smidge, if you continue to follow follow that that smidge, you're going to, before you know it, you're going to be so far away from true north. He says, you will shipwreck your faith, chapter 1. So he says, stay focused. That's why we're called to be in the word every day and in the company of those who love us enough to continue to help us get back toward true north. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Take my heart and seal it for the courts above. So our mission on this crazy journey that we're on is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, faithful to whatever he's called us to. Our responsibility is to do whatever it is that he's called us to do. We each have a unique mission a unique responsibility, a unique sphere of influences, and the the influence, how that's actually going to work itself out, that's up to him. We're faithful unto obedience, not to results. There's no guarantee. We live our lives before him in truth and love. We plant the seeds, but it's going to be God that gives the increase. He will do with it. He controls the results. I remember five years ago at my commissioning service here at the church, the elders laid hands on me, prayed, commissioned me. Pastor Larry was where I am right now, preaching 2 Timothy, a commission to me. I'm sitting where you all are, and just, I'm a hot mess. I'm just praying, I love you guys, and I'm so, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And he gave me these two guiding principles that he said, and he, and he taught me these over and over again. He said, Justin, when you're thinking about how to organize your time, how to, how to stay true north, he said, be in the word. Be with Jesus the living word and his written word, and then be with people. Be with his body. Be in the word and be with people. And like a lighthouse, that, those have been words to help me stay true north, especially when we go through hard things like suicide funerals, division in the church, pandemics, to keep my eyes on true north. So he says, look at me, look at me. You're discipling in a difficult season, in a difficult world, Keep your eyes on the one you follow. John 16, he said, you will have trouble. He guaranteed the sin in us, the, the difficulties we go through in our circumstances, you will have trouble. But he says, but take heart. Take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. He fought the fight. The battle won. Jesus already defeated sin and death. We're walking in his victory, carrying out, we're following him in the train of his robe and the victory that he's already won in this world. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We can have peace in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of the storms that we find ourselves in. There will be storms. There will be a valley. valley. But take heart because the victorious one holds us, carries us, allows us to persevere through. And on the other side, we can find glory with him for eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, 
and know as I think about a room this size that we're all going through different valleys, different storms, different difficulties, internal struggles, addictions, and heartache, depression, anxieties, sinful habits and thoughts and lies that we're buying. We know that we're in a sinful world with sinful governments and sinful relationships and sinful bosses and sinful parents, sinful children. Lord, the way is hard. Yet, Father, we, we are reminded of the living hope that we have in Jesus who became flesh just like us, died in our place to demonstrate how much you love us as your children. Would you remind us of our true identity? That we would stay in the word, that you would put people around us who can encourage us, point us back toward true north when that wandering heart does what it is so prone to do, that we would be faithful and recognize that the only way we can do anything that you called us to do, the only way that, that we can do any, any fruit bearing is by your grace in us. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the Savior of this world. And we know our sin is great. I've got a laundry list of sins that I can think of right now. We know our troubles are great. I've got a whole laundry list of things that keep me up at night. Father, your mercy is more. Your grace is more. We lift our hands to the victorious one, that the living hope that we have in us, and we claim the truth that he who began the good work in us will complete it by your grace, for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.